Chapter Ten of Lancashire Characters and Places by Thomas Newbigging. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Old John's Sunday Dinner. You know Old John and his two bonny lasses, bless em. Prettier never stepped in shoe leather. Their mother too was one of the right sort, trim as a May daisy and kindly as true love and a warm heart could make her. But she's gone, poor dear. Peace be with her ashes. Old John's fond of a good Sunday dinner, a bit of nice roast beef, just a trifle underdone, and some potatoes boiled in their jackets, and smoking hot suit him well. He's a gradely old Lancashire Englishman, is John, and when he gets sat down in his armchair in the nook, and a long clay pipe in his mouth, he looks such a picture of calm content as would do your heart good to see. Jimmer Abrams and I go a-camping with old John of a night sometimes, and what with his humoursome jokes and his queer tales, either my sides are sore with laughing, or my cheeks wet with the tears that will keep toddling o'er them, do what I may to keep them back. Jimmer Abrams generally sits with his mouth agape, staring with wonderment as he listens to the stories that flow from John's lips. Yea, Jim says, John might have been a book for aught as I know, is so full of wit and wisdom, and along o' that, says to set em off to the best advantage. So say I, Jim. As I have already remarked, nothing pleases John better than a good Sunday dinner, and so he always makes a point of having one if he can contrive it by fair means, and being a bit of a cook, and rather ticklish in his taste besides, he's in the habit sometimes of looking after the roasting of the meat himself, while Mary and Maggie go to the church to spoil the parson's sermon to all the lads within sheep's ear distance of the pew where they sit. Well, it so happened the other Sunday morning that John was taking a turn round the front garden and inhaling the fresh air as it came up the garden alley, loaded with fragrance from wallflower and violet, and cooled by the dew that hung sparkling from a thousand leafy pendants. All at once he bethought himself that a good long walk towards Rowley Moor would be pleasant on such a morning, and that noon would find him in none the worse trim to enjoy his dinner. In this mind he stepped into the house, straightened his bitter yore, and threw on his Saturday night coat. Mary, who had just gone upstairs with her sister to dress for church, had very thoughtfully put the six ribs into the roasting tin, and sprinkled a pinch of flour over them, so as to be ready for her father, that he might just slip them into the oven when he came in out of the garden. John, seeing the meat set out on the dresser, concluded that his daughter Mary had, unsolicited, made up her mind to stay at home, and take the cooking in hand herself, as indeed she occasionally did on a Sunday. He was well enough pleased with this supposed arrangement, as it left him at liberty to enjoy the full benefit of his forenoon's walk. After putting on his hat, he lifted the meat, and pushed it into the oven, and shut to the door. Then making his way down the garden walk, he crossed the turnpike road, and struck into the footpath that leads to Rowley, round the edge of the lodge at Stagvale Mill. John enjoyed his walk famously, as who with a spark of intelligent feeling could fail to do in such a romantic neighbourhood. The immense masses of rock, of which Rowley is largely composed, and which have for countless ages withstood the denuding influences of sea and weather, at one time formed part of a deep-sea bottom, 
over which the waves were lashed by the winds into fury, and on which, at a later epoch, the animals of pre-Adamite time sported themselves. These rocks, once immersed, but now towering some thousand feet or more above the sea-level, and hoary with age and lichens, jutted over the path and frowned down on the passing wanderer. Not unobserved by John, for he possessed a poet's eye, grew the little celandine, the speedwell, and the bluebell at the base of the rock, where the fern waved its graceful frond beside the purple orchid. Away over the moor, knee-deep in heather, purple with bloom, the grouse retreated with whirring din, and at times a straggling hare would start, prick its ears, and timidly scud away to a safe resting place. Up from the valley below came the cuckoo's solitary note, with cadence bordering on sadness, and reminding one of the long summer days at hand. But we are wandering from our story. We left the lasses upstairs dressing for church, and see, while we have been digressing, they have got through the complicated process, and yonder they go up the road towards the church, shading off with their parasols the rays of the sun that fain would kiss their bonny cheeks, but failing this, are sparkling in the bright shoes that envelop their pretty feet. The lasses, all unconscious of their father's absence, had left the house, Mary first giving a peep into the oven, believing that he was acting as cook-in-chief, and had but just gone out to return in a few minutes. While John was enjoying his forenoon's ramble, and the lasses were being edified by the remarks of the parson on the evil results that follow from pride in wearing fine clothes, the meat in the oven was simmering away. The fire did its duty, and the oven too, and the piece of six ribs, whisked and frisked and frizzled and grizzled, and stuttered and guttered, as though conscious of playing a rare joke on old John, and anxious to make him learn to think less highly of his cooking for the future. When the dinner's good, the cook shouldn't run away with all the credit. The lasses at length reached home. The fire was beginning to look grey and seedy. The oven was cooling down, and the sweat was drying on the forehead of the six ribs, after their exertions to get themselves cooked. But the meat was in prime condition notwithstanding, rather dry to be sure, for want of basting, but nice and crimp outside, and the fat looking as brown and luscious as a midsummer gooseberry. Mary, on observing the state of affairs, and seeing no preparation for dinner on the table, stood stock still in the middle of the floor, first looking at the fire, and then at her sister, who was equally perplexed, unable to speak a single word. At length, recovering herself, she ran to the foot of the stairs and shouted, Father, are you there? No answer being returned, out into the garden she hastened, and called still louder, Father, where are you? Still no answer, for it takes a strong pair of lungs to make themselves heard to Rowley Moor. Well, affairs wore a serious complexion to be sure. Door wide open, fire dying out, the oven cooling down, no potatoes in the pan, and father nowhere to be seen. Mary began to cry, and Maggie followed suit. Jimma Abs happened to be passing at the moment when Mary was calling, and seeing that she looked anxious and uneasy, he crossed the road and inquired the cause. "'Have you seen father?' she asked. "'Not this morning, my lass,' replied Jim, and with that she broke out crying bitterly. 
Jim nearly cried too to see the poor lass in such trouble, but observing Jack of the Nook coming forward, he beckoned on him to look sharp, and lifting the latch of the gate, they walked hastily through the garden into the house, led by Mary, sobbing deeply as she went. The state of matters as far as she understood them, having been briefly outlined by Mary, Jack of the Nook, with serious countenance, proposed that the house should be searched. Jim and the lasses having acquiesced, the house was searched accordingly, from attic to cellar and up again, but nowhere was John to be found. The two then sallied out with sorrowful looks to inquire after John in the village. Soon a crowd of gaping rustics collected, ominous conjectures were broached, and each seriously considered, but no definite conclusion could anyone come to as to the whereabouts of John, until Georgia Bobs, scratching a dirty pate, half covered by a greasy cap, and with a face as white as a week's dirt and a beard unshorn would permit, stood forward and declared that while he was maundering about some two hours before, he saw John by the side of the mill lodge. "'You struck the reet nail on the head, George,' rejoined one of the company. "'He's at the bottom of the lodge, without doubt,' said another. "'Be guy, I thought I heard a queer kind of splash just about that time,' chimed in Tommy, our owd Toms. "'Run for Bill of the Smithy and his grappling irons,' said Jack of the Nook, "'while I go fetch a plank or two to mat a raff The crowd by this time had largely increased. Half the village had made their way to the lodge bank. Several of the onlookers vowed they could see the yore o' John's yed aboon the waiter, but it turned out to be only the fur on the back of a drowned cat floating near the surface. Shortly the grappling irons, with ominous jingle, were borne through the crowd, slung from the shoulder of Smithy Bill, who had thrown off his black coat, having just returned from the chapel, and donned his everyday fustian jacket. The raft was speedily constructed, and being set afloat on the surface of the water, Jack of the Nook volunteered to take the first round at dragging. Leaving Jack to pursue his exertions on the raft, while the crowd is anxiously looking on, let us return to the cottage where we left the sisters plunged in deepest grief at the supposed loss of their poor father. Several of the neighbours had by this time gone in to condole with and speak comfort to the lasses. Cold comfort indeed some of them conveyed, as they related frightful stories of bygone accidents, and the ghastly incidents therewith connected, of suicides committed in the neighbourhood, nay, in the very lodge where search was at that moment being made for the body of their parent. These narrations, much exaggerated of course, only tended to increase the grief of the poor girls, and just as their agony had reached fever point, who should be seen walking leisurely up the garden alley but old John himself, looking as fresh as a lark on a May morning, after a visit to Heaven's Gate, and with good humour beaming in his ruddy countenance, partly the effect of pleasing anticipations of the good dinner in store for him on his return home. Mary was the first to observe his arrival, and in her haste to salute her parent, nearly overturned Salia Oudmatis, who calmly smoking opposite the fire, her chair neatly balanced on its two hind legs, swaying gently to and fro, was relating with circumstantial minuteness the harrowing details of the untimely end by drowning of knock-kneed Roger, while endeavouring during an October flood 
to save a pig which he had been at great expense and pains to fatten for home consumption we can easily conceive the surprise not unmixed with anxiety that overspread the countenance of old john as he stood in the doorway stroking his beard and looking with inquiring eyes first at his pale-cheeked lasses so unlike their wont and then at the gossips who had made such unseasonable intrusion into his domicile explanation soon followed on congratulation and the tear-stricken faces of mary and maggie began to assume their wonted appearance on the other hand a good deal of disappointment was observable on the features of more than one of the gossips that they had been cheated out of the wholesome excitement attendant on a coroner's inquest and the gratification of taking part in the ceremony of the succeeding funeral as the neighbours were preparing to leave the house john's attention was arrested by the unusual crowd of people assembled on the lodge-bank and the significant movements of jack of the nook on the raft being informed of the cause of the gathering which indeed he had already divined the opportunity for perpetrating a joke being too good to be permitted to slip he hastily doffed his coat and after drawing the sleeves inside out donned it again much to the amusement of his daughters and the gossips who at once guessed his purpose he exchanged his hat for a nightcap and whitened his face with half a handful of flour the work of a few minutes and sallying quickly out unobserved by the crowd down he cautiously crept by the side of the wall bordering the lodge-bank jack of the nook being wearied with his unusual exertions on the raft had paddled to the side to allow georgia bobs the next round in the search the latter had just got one foot on the raft the other being still on the bank when a hollow sepulchral groan as though it had issued from the recesses of a churchyard vault struck terror into the hearts of the unsuspecting bystanders every eye was turned in the direction whence the sound proceeded what language can describe the horror that was depicted on the countenances of the assemblage as john's apparition was seen stately as the ghost in hamlet standing immovably erect and with outstretched arms slightly arched at its extremity pointing to the deepest part of the lodge at the same time repeating in measured cadence the words drag the hollow drag it round soon the lost shall be the found but none waited to attend to the ghost's advice the effect was general and instantaneous the terror-stricken villagers rushed helter-skelter down the lodge banks and crossing the field made for the gate leading out into the turnpike road it was shut and fastened the crowd stopped not to open it that indeed would not have been possible but sweeping onward crash went the gate off its hinges out into the middle of the road many of the multitude halting not until safely buried beneath the bedclothes in their respective habitations georgia bobs in his hot haste to get away missed his footing and slipped from the end of the raft dragging jack of the nook whom he caught by the coat skirt down into the water with him where struggling and floundering they begged the ghost in piteous accents to have mercy upon them the result threatened to be serious and john repenting of his temerity in having carried the joke to this extremity began clambering over the wall to assist in rescuing the unfortunate victims this proceeding on the part of the ghost only added to their terror and it was but by a series of frantic efforts 
that the two succeeded in extricating themselves from the mixture of mud and water, just as old John dropped on the other side of the fence. It is needless to say that, long ere our hero had recovered from his first fit of laughter, he was master of the field, not a single rival remaining to dispute his title. Coming down the road, I bethought me to drop in at John's, and while helping to eat part of the dinner that had done its own cooking, he told me the tale as I have related it to you. End of chapter 10